0: Pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja,
1: chronic, cannabis, cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than ten years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey buddy, hey, hey buddy, psst, psst, hey buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am. Fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment in legalization go up in smoke? <coughs> Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on The Coin Podcast Network. One of the biggest motivations in the push for cannabis reform has been social justice. Our inaugural guest on this podcast became an advocate for cannabis reform after watching legal clients he defended go to prison for nonviolent possession. Congressman Blumenauer called the war on drugs a failure, and the data shows that communities of color have been disproportionately targeted, arrested, and imprisoned for cannabis offenses. In this episode, we speak with Jeanette Ward-Horton, the co-founder and CEO of New Project. A nonprofit built around the concept of economic justice for the BIPOC community through participation in the cannabis industry.
0: You're listening to Mainstream Media.
1: Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin Six News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin Six News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you.
0: Welcome back to Mainstream Media.
1: Jeanette Ward-Horton, CEO and co-founder of the nonprofit organization New Project, left a successful career in the traditional corporate world for the cannabis industry. Jeanette, there are some big corporate names on your resume. What led you to this industry and eventually co-founding a nonprofit?
0: Um, thanks. I was at Coca-Cola right before... Coming to the cannabis industry, and I started in the industry, um, actually a cannabis technology company. It's called Kerna, A-K-E-R-N-A. Today traded on NASDAQ, so it was really an opportunity at the time, I thought, to Get into a consumer product good that was starting from scratch in a way and yet had a whole history. Consumers already had a knowledge of the plan and we were learning and still are learning how much good it can do as medicine. So I found all that really exciting and thought it would be fun and interesting to help shape an industry from the beginning. It was small enough that you can really make an impact.
1: So you're at Akerna, and what leads you from Akerna? to the co-founding of New Project?
0: Great question. So I remember going to my first conference, a cannabis conference, national conference, it was in Las Vegas. And it was just shocking to me that the conference was, quite frankly, whiter than corporate America. And corporate America is not very diverse. So as I looked around at cannabis industry that was less diverse, it just really blew my mind because one, small emerging sectors tend to be more diverse at the start. So it didn't match that norm. And the history of this plant with Black people in particular, I myself have been arrested. I've had just far too many experiences of arrest with close family members. So to know that that impact is so widespread, the way the plant was used as a tool of the war on drugs to over police and arrest and create records for specifically black people. We have the data to show that the fact that this emerging industry, now that we've changed our minds and it's legal, as white as it was, just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like justice, that the money that would be made for this industry would not repair the harm done when the plant was illegal.
1: What year was this that you went to the conference
0: 2015
1: okay so right after a few of the states had passed their laws maybe not had gone into implementation but the writing was on the wall when i spoke with congressman blumenauer he summed it up in a way that i will carry to this day he said that richard nixon weaponized cannabis and it's still being used as a weapon And both the congressman and the chief petitioner of Measure 91, Anthony Johnson, said the same thing, that those most impacted by the war on drugs should have the first seat at the table. Now, that leads me to the phrase economic justice. Did you and your team come up with this, or was this an established concept? The concept that Black, Indigenous, Latinx community members have access and ability to participate in this new industry. Were these the conversations that were being had as you were founding this?
0: It was. um, And then to tell the story properly, I'd have to back up to 2015. When I joined the industry, other people were having those conversations. And very early days, a group of us formed the Minority Cannabis Business Association and then we as an association set out national policy on how could an industry set forth in a way that accomplishes economic justice and so when i say economic justice and you mentioned it's on our website what we're talking about is Lots of data shows the detriment of the wealth stripping of over policing. So, over policing and its long tail impacts, it's not just the arrest and the incarceration, it's the way that that depresses your ability to earn income and strips your existing resources that last for a lifetime. And economic justice says, We use this particular plant in just insidious ways to continue to incarcerate and create records for Black people arrested four times to one, even though the health data shows that white and Black folks consume cannabis at similar rates. So we have that imbalance that created this economic wealth gap. And Black folks in this country, data shows, are on a decline to be on average zero wealth, while other ethnic groups and racial groups are on an upward swing. So how do we address that in an industry that's going legal, that's creating new tax dollars for states and cities at leaps and bounds? Oregon keeps revising their tax projections for cannabis they can't keep up. How do you say as ourselves, as community members, we have this opportunity as we we now bring wealth into the state to address the wealth stripping of our Black families? with cannabis taxes. And you can do that both by creating entrepreneurs who are Black who have that first seat at the table, like Congressman Blumenauer said, so that they can participate in the actual wealth building exercise that is creating a cannabis business. But you can also take cannabis taxes and do more than that. And you can invest them in home ownership and entrepreneurship for a tech company or a retail company, all the other ways you can build wealth and restore the wealth and create economic justice for the Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people who are Most arrested. So it's a two part answer that came from the Minority Cannabis Business Association and that first work that we were doing as a group to say, what do we need to do to solve this problem? And that's where this idea. Like I said, other people were having those conversations, but that national policy, I think, really created a framework that we've seen other states follow.
1: Where does New Project come in? When was the light bulb moment where you said to yourself, this is great, we have policy in the works, but the process of enacting policy can be incredibly slow. We need to start working at ground level, and we're going to move some capital. We're going to help with mentorship, training, networking. When does that moment happen? Walk me through the founding of New Project.
0: I feel like you set me up. I mean, bingo. The light bulb moment was national policy is great and it sets this framework, but policy doesn't always work and it's slow. And so New Project was about saying, I want to roll up our sleeves and work where this work needs to be done with entrepreneurs. We've got to be working directly with these businesses with the gaps that we know they have. You said them, capital, mentoring, networking. It's really how we birthed this was to, Say we've got to move faster than policy and regulation is moving. We can work private angles to get the capital and the mentoring and the networking that we need to solve this sooner we actually have a funder their company's called nimble and their founder said that you know we we can't wait for government that cannabis companies have to do it now we have to we have to do the work for economic justice now
1: one of the things that concerns me with oregon in particular is foreign investment in our cannabis market and particularly canadian investment Is it something that you're worried about that if a lot of the BIPOC owners are struggling and they don't have the access to capital or mentorship, that a large company out of Canada comes in, flashes a check and says, hey, I can get you out of this. And then they're out. Does that worry you at all?
0: I've got to say it's not a worry for me. And I would tell you honestly that not all of the entrepreneurs in our network agree with me, but I don't believe it's a worry because what I believe is that have seen it, especially BIPOC entrepreneurs, undercapitalized entrepreneurs, because your capital's low, your funds are low. You've learned how to be really scrappy. You've learned how to control margins and costs. You've learned how to stretch a dollar. And you're, our BIPOC entrepreneurs really know this culture. They really know their products. They're really incredible entrepreneurs. And that is the differentiation that you need in a market to win. That said, Capital does matter. And I think that we can. And this is why we form new project and why and there are other groups and organizations doing this. So this is really a collective we. We can get in the way of that flow of capital because there's plenty of capital. You talked about it. They're coming down out of Canada. They don't necessarily come and set up their own shop. Sometimes they come and they buy existing brands who have set a footprint, who have created that market and that loyal consumer. So our BIPOC entrepreneurs can be in a position for those Canadian companies coming down to buy brands for that to be their exit and that to be their desired way to move forward their business. We just have to be there to shine a light on them because often they get missed. Often that private capital misses them. Often those venture deals miss them. So we need to, as I said, get in the way and interrupt that flow of capital so that it can flow to our BIPOC entrepreneurs. And I believe we can do that. That's why we're doing the work. And we've seen the economic justice from the city of Portland direct cannabis tax dollars to help move that flow of funds. So we've seen success in moving more funds to our BIPOC entrepreneurs to set them up, to compete better and to create the kind of businesses that thrive.
1: The Portland City Council just recently passed an emergency $1.3 million grant for cannabis businesses here in the area. Was New Project involved in this process? Do you administer those grants?
0: Yeah, So I will say quickly, that's really how we got our founding is cannabis tax dollars from the city of Portland. Voters approved that cannabis tax dollars, a percent of cannabis tax dollars would go to fund BIPOC entrepreneurs in cannabis and provide mentoring and networking and, and support them. And so that's where we started. We started receiving that first set of city grants. And then that has evolved as the city has seen the return on those investments and the growth of these companies, the way these companies contribute by hiring employees and contributing to our tax base. And so they've, and the benefit of investing in diverse founders. And so they've increased their contributions there and the city's contributions there, which really, I believe, aligns with the voters will. The truth is we're not. That 1.3 million, the number you just named, is a significant. Number in comparison to what cannabis businesses have received prior to now. So the city's doing a good job increasing their funding to get to levels that start to really make a difference. And it is emergency relief funding, the 1.3 million you just named. That funding is going to start being released this year for businesses who have suffered impacts because of COVID regulations or COVID shutdowns or wildfires. Wildfires year over year have really impacted cannabis businesses. And then unfortunately, we've seen more cannabis businesses get robbed recently. you don't have recourse. You don't have bank loans. You don't have a lot of insurance that's available. So there's just, you don't have federal dollars. A lot of federal dollars came for businesses for COVID relief and wildfire relief. None of that came to cannabis businesses. So if you want to continue to see this industry thrive, you've got to provide it with the funds that you would any other industry to help it get through tough times. So that's what these emergency relief funds are about. It's kind of plugging that hole where the federal government doesn't provide these relief funds. It is our second year This will be our second year distributing city relief funds. We distributed city relief funds last year as well. So this 1.3 million is their second distribution. The second time we'll be doing that.
1: And these are absolutely life-saving grants. Many of these businesses are teetering on the edge. It takes time to reach profitability, but even then it's such a slim margin because of the high tax rate and the lack of the banking access that non-cannabis businesses have. So these are businesses that are on the edge of collapse and these grants keep these businesses afloat?
0: It is. And you've said it beautifully about why they, why would this industry in particular need these funds? What's their particular business challenges and economic challenges and profitability is is a dream for a lot of cannabis businesses right now. So then you say, well, why does this matter? If these guys aren't making money yet and these funds help them stay alive, you know, as listeners, why would I care? First, I would say that cannabis is medicine and we want legal, safe, regulated access to that one. But two, tax revenue for our state are good. They're good for our public schools. They're good for our streets and roads. They're good for our quality of life. And this industry really represents an opportunity for our state to bring in a lot of new tax dollars. And there's an opportunity really for states to emerge as the leaders once we go to federal legalization in this industry. And so supporting these businesses is is really a smart move for cities and states to make.
1: Tell me exactly what New Project does. What are your three big areas of assistance?
0: So first, we've got funding for cannabis businesses, and we prioritize funding Black, Indigenous, and Latinx businesses, the communities most harmed by the war on drugs. But we also fund more diverse entrepreneurs in that we focus on entrepreneurs who have been historically excluded. So women-owned entrepreneurs and LGBTQ entrepreneurs. We do that primarily through grants and loans. We have low interest and zero interest loans. And then we have mentoring and networking that supports those entrepreneurs, those that find Fund, we fund as well as um, just a wider range of entrepreneurs. We tell people to truly email us, and you can get a meeting with us to talk about your journey, your potential journey of becoming a cannabis entrepreneur. The other thing that we have is a jobs board. So there are other ways to build wealth, as you mentioned. I came to this industry with a corporate background, and so you can build wealth as a high-earning professional, especially if you can own some stock in the company you work for. Doing that, and so not everyone's an entrepreneur. So what are those other Path for building generational wealth in the cannabis industry. And we believe it's through careers in addition to entrepreneurship. So if that's your path, if you want to try out, like I did, my first role in cannabis was a marketing executive at a tech company. If that's for you, we've got a jobs board and we want people to come check out the jobs that we've got with cannabis companies who value diversity and understand the benefit it brings to them.
1: Where do you find your mentors?
0: It depends on what the business needs. This is why I always say email us and we take a meeting, it's very one-on-one, but the mentors might be someone who owns a distribution company, who can tell an emerging edibles brand, what is best to do to get your product on shelf and what pricing looks like in the market and what are some of the trends. And they can think about that as they develop their next product line, or we might pair you with a, an accountant because you've got some opportunity on your bookkeeping and setting up your chart of accounts and thinking about how your cash flow. And so it really just depends on the specific entrepreneur's need. Now, are these professionals
1: or businesses that you're already in contact with? Or are they business people that are finding new project and reaching out to you wanting to be part of this?
0: Yeah, I wish we got more of those. Usually we kind of meet people out and they learn about what they do and they sign up that way. And we don't get a lot of cold call emails about mentors, but going out and about, we'll meet people and they'll learn about our mission and then folks will say, how can I help? And the answer is always, first and foremost, be a mentor.
1: So if I go to your website right now at newproject.org, is there a way I can contact you if I have the desire to be a mentor?
0: Yes, nuproject.org, and then go to our, it's a really simple website, the work page, and you'll find a section around mentoring, and you can click the link and sign up to be a mentor.
1: So if you're out there and you're in the industry, and if you're looking to give back, this is a really outstanding way to give back. So go to nuproject.org and click that mentor button. Now I want to get into the biggest challenges. So a person raises the capital, they've opened up. What's the next big challenge that they tend to face?
0: So the realistic picture is they opened on a shoestring budget and they've MacGyvered that thing. You know, there's bubble gum and scotch tape. In places where entrepreneurs with more capital can set up tools right away that allow them to scale. So you can bring in certain lights or certain you know, watering systems that, while more expensive up front, save you money immediately in labor, cost of goods. And so what we see is that the BIPOC entrepreneur, because they didn't have the capital for some of those systems, is running more expensively and less profitably. So it really does boil down to they've opened, but the amount of capital they had at their disposal is putting them at a disadvantage to more well-capitalized businesses.
1: Is that one of the things that you're helping work through with the grants? a new lighting assembly, a different watering system in there that isn't going to cost more in the long run? Yes,
0: yeah, specifically, I did, I'm only shaking my head. So yes, yeah, specifically, that's what we do with the grants is we like to look at how can we fund exactly that with a, a watering system that is automatic so you can save on labor. Those are the, our sweet spot on those kinds of grants.
1: Do you believe that some of those challenges will dissipate when it is descheduled at the federal level? Or is that federal schedule one status irrelevant that the system is so inherently biased, the BIPOC community will continue to face similar challenges? They may have access to banking, but they're not going to have access to the same bank or they're going to be challenged because of their credit history or the lack of collateral. Will federal cannabis reform help the BIPOC community?
0: Yes, is the overall answer. The federal of cannabis will help the BIPOC community. You're asking in the context of funding, so we'll stay in the context of funding. Opening up the traditional banking system—you know, your Wells Fargo, your Corner Credit Union—to cannabis businesses, your SBA loans means that you've got. Everyone in the industry has more access to capital. And where a BIPOC entrepreneur has the credit and the collateral and those markers that are required, they will find their path easier. There will be more funding for BIPOC entrepreneurs once cannabis is descheduled. It's just that's true. However, the inequities in funding will still exist. And you really preluded to this. The in traditional bank funding in SBA funding and the PPP loans, what I liked most about that moment in time is how it shed a clear light on the way funding is so inequitable from the federal government. The way that we have set up a structure, and you started to name the C's around credit score and collateral, that that's where systematic racism shows up. People are like, well, what is that? This isn't about people. This is about systems that set rules that exclude communities uh, to no fault of their own. We talked about the wealth stripping. So I don't have the collateral. I mortgaged that home so that I could pay for the bail for that you know bogus cannabis charge. So I don't have that home that would have given me the collateral to get this bank loan. The wealth stripping that came from the racist targeting of over-policing, I could draw that line to, I lost that home. And now I don't have it for the collateral that you needed For this SBA loan. These things stack and we see this systematic racism that impacts people. So de-scheduling of cannabis is good. Yes, we want that. And yes, that's good for BIPOC entrepreneurs. But we've got, I want to say I'm looking forward to the day we've got because I'm looking forward to making change. We've got a lot of work ahead of us to interrupt that flow of capital where we talk about traditional bank funding and federal funding. And I think the SBA and the feds, and you know I'm excited, the MORE Act attempts to look at funding for BIPOC entrepreneurs and address it. I like that there's attention being paid there. I think we have more work to do. But I think we can do the work. I think the federal government really needs to start getting accountable around federal dollars being equitable and doing something about that. So I hope that that's coming. Do
1: you ever see a day where there's not a need for a new project?
0: Yes, because you you could, I believe, get to a place where we address Flows of funding, because funds, money flows to businesses various ways. So we talked about the federal flow of funding. Federal dollars come down through SBA and other programs. You've got private flow of dollars. You've got where does venture capital go? Who are those networks? And again, you know, less than 1% of VC funding goes to Black-owned companies. Then you've got flow of funding from the bank of mom and dad, where you have funded your business from your own savings. Your parents gave you a quick loan or Christmas gift that's inequitable because we've got inequities in household wealth. But I think you can look at all of these flows and either interrupt that flow of capital or help you know, rebuild the capital that families lost. And I don't know how long that would take, but I think you can get to a place where that's what you're doing. And that is how we evolve. We say, great, now we're talking about banking and flows of funds that aren't unique to the cannabis industry. We're talking about that for all BIPOC entrepreneurs and industries.
1: You have been in Oregon for five years?
0: Yes, almost five. What do you think
1: Oregon's done well with the industry and where are they still very challenged?
0: Yeah. So I've traveled a lot too and seen a lot of other markets. So the first thing I'd say that we've done well is we really do have fireweed. Uh, We grow some of the really, truly some of the best cannabis and there's maybe some rivaling in Northern California, but that's pretty good. We should be very proud of our products. I think we've got a good place to start from. What we also did really well in this industry is we didn't set out initial license caps. And we kept our licensing fees relatively low. Now it's still $5,000. However, liquor license is like a couple hundred. So it's high, but it's lower than the $25,000 they're asking for in other states or $100,000 even. So we did a good job in creating an industry that was fairer, that you didn't have to have loads and loads of money to start and not having license caps people may not understand what I mean. So most states put a cap on licenses. They said, we're only going to have six. We're only going to have one per county. And that makes licenses very expensive because you kind of locked up your market right away. You're the only game in the county. You're only one of six and they're just expensive. And now an entrepreneur who who didn't have a lot of capital is immediately priced out. They're the Ferrari and I will not be playing (laughs) this time. So we did a good job because I think what Oregon came to the table with is a small business mindset. And that I think has been great for our state. It's where you've gotten craft beer and where you've got some of these other industries to emerge. So I think we started from a good place, What we've gotten wrong are two things. One, we need to fall in the footsteps of California, Illinois, New York, and set aside these cannabis taxes for economic justice. We need to move this money for a period of justice. We actually have a bill that Senator Lawrence Spence is going to champion for us this coming session in 2022. And it is an economic justice bill. You can go to OregonEquityAct.com and actually read about it. We believe we need to set these taxes aside. We believe we can get economic justice now for over-policing, and we really want people who care about this to tell their legislator about it. And so Oregon can do that. We can take these growing taxes and create economic justice. But then the next thing we need to do is stop regulating the industry like it's still illegal <laughs> and start thinking about it more as, you know, what are, the, what are the ways we look at this industry so that it grows Rather than thinking about it as something that we kind of control or just just make cost prohibitive. So it's hard for people to get started.
1: I spoke with economist Bo Whitney on the previous episode, and he said he wished the OLCC had built the system on data and not like the feds were going to swoop in at any moment and take it all away. But the OLCC is adapting. Look at the changes they announced this year. Being able to buy two ounces now at a dispensary instead of just one. And opening up cannabis delivery outside of the dispensary's immediate area. The changes seem incremental, but it seems to be going in the right direction.
0: Yeah, you know, it's incremental. And it's a lot of effort. I was close to that delivery bill. You mentioned the bill about increasing limits. It takes... Far too much effort to move the needle slowly. So it's really a mind shift for Oregon, for the OLCC, that's not fueled by bigotry. That's fueled by thinking about this as an industry that, that will grow our tax base. And that's what I'm asking.
1: As a marketing person, how do we go about changing hearts and minds? Because it still seems viewed as illicit but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be any different than someone walking in and and getting a craft beer or an Oregon Pinot. As a marketer, what should the industry start doing? Is it just going to take time?
0: You know, I think the more that we're willing to lead on shifting our laws to normalize, we tried to get cannabis consumption lounges through last session, as an example, and people are scared of change, no matter what the subject is. So you you're recognizing that the more you can see, I believe, folks who consume and see it normalized. I mean... You know, we've gotten used to seeing people take a drink at a table. No, I mean, why would anyone care? Like it's not, it's like, what are you even speaking about? And so you also are used to, you know, how do you get to where you are just seeing it in everyday life and then seeing that there is no fallout? I think people are afraid of the big fallout. But as you said, we've been doing this for a long time. The feds haven't showed up you don't actually have an increase, people thought and, you know, wrecks because of people driving who are under consumption or young people trying more cannabis because it's now legal. Like you don't have the things you thought you were afraid of. So it's time to say we've had enough time to see that what we were afraid of didn't happen. Now let's open our eyes to the good that is happening because of cannabis. Let's hear those stories. So as a marketer, I would say we need more of those stories. It's still life-saving medicine every day for people. And you stop seeing the news on CNN like you used to. I feel like Sanjay Gupta was on every week a few years ago talking about that, but it's still real every single day. You know, those stories and examples will be helpful, but so is just being willing to lead with the laws. And saying, let's get out there. Let's do the things that normalize this plant so that then people can respond in kind to say, okay, this is normal. It's my choice or not my choice, but this is normal.
1: How can people learn more about New Project? And how can people support you in the mission that you do?
0: Yeah, so learn more by going to our website. I think spelling it's helpful because it's nuproject.org. So in uh, project.org, you can support us by thank you for making the call to be a mentor. You can support us via funding. Perhaps you've been interested in funding black and brown entrepreneurs. We are working with funders on what that looks like and have several things happening there. Do you just want to simply give grants? Do you want something that brings the money back to you? You can do good and win-win, as they say, in corporate America. So we are just excited about the opportunity to connect, again, disrupt that flow of funds, connect funders to our entrepreneurs. So that's there. And then finally, if you are a cannabis company and you would like to diversify your workforce, we would love to see you join our professional jobs board and become an employer there.
1: And I would add frequent and support BIPOC cannabis businesses.
0: Yeah, People are always asking who, you know, where. So you can go to our website and see a list of those companies as well. You can see some of the businesses we fund. Natural Wonders is a dispensary in Southeast. You could get your cannabis delivered from Greenbox or Potmates, both Black-owned cannabis delivery companies. So there's lots of options. Check out our website for more. Jeanette,
1: thank you so much. And I would love to have you back on the program, especially after the legislative session to hear how some of the work down there is gone wish nothing but the best for you and your organization
0: thank you very much i appreciate that jeanette ward
1: horton ceo and co-founder of new project check them out at nuproject.org
0: mainstream media
1: it's been seven years since oregon legalized adult use cannabis and 47 percent of the state was not in favor of the plan On the next episode, we talk to one of the advocates against legalization. We'll talk about the negative consequences, the medical research, and where they feel the experiment is failing. On the next episode of Mainstream Media on The Coin Podcast Network.